Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. (laughs) I am so honored and excited to see my friend, Corey Dubrowa, who is one of the most unbelievable communications experts in the world, literally. With more than 20 years as a communicator of ideas, Corey is an executive who has long been considered one of the top corporate communicators in the U.S. Corey is currently the vice president of global communications and public affairs at Google, And prior to that, he was executive vice president and chief communications officer at Salesforce during the period in which the company was named to the top spot in Fortune's Future 50 and Forbes Innovator of the Decade. And of course, Corey, you've held management and communications roles at Wagoner, Edstrom Worldwide, Ketchum, Nike, Starbucks, which you spent many years at, and Saks Fifth Avenue. And what's incredible about you is that you have this crazy ability to shift between totally different industries and like you go in there and you are such an agent of change and we're going to get to that. But in case everyone thinks that Corey's just PR all day long, all the time, he also is a journalist with many thousands of articles in publications like Rolling Stone and The Village Voice. And you were just featured, congratulations, in PR Week's 2021 U.S. Power List, ranking seven out of the 50 comms leaders, and of course, previous other multiple industry awards over the past 20 years, including two PR Week Global Awards, four Sabras, three PRSA, Silver Anvils, and the University of Oregon Alumni Association's Gene Johnson Service Award. And you're currently on the board of Providence St. Joseph's Health National Foundation, and recently served on the Arthur W. Page Society's Board of Trustees and the USC Annenberg School's Board of Advisors. And apparently you have 40 hours in your day because I don't know how you do all this stuff, Corey. I don't. <laughs> it's amazing, Lisa, what you can do when you don't sleep. I know that Ariana Huffington would have a lot to say about that. Mostly she'd be trying to counsel me. But yes, if you're not a like 12 hours a day sleep person, you can do some things. So wait, how many hours a night are you getting? Probably six. Okay, six. Then probably like four cups of Starbucks after that, or how does that go? (laughs) Coffee is definitely on the menu for sure, but I feel like it's on all of our menu. Part of it is, is that during the pandemic, 
we split time between the Bay Area, which is where the day gig is, and um, here in Oregon, which is where I am now. So I'm in Bend, which is uh, high desert. And we have a ranch with about, mm, right now, there's probably 50 female alpaca and some babies because it's baby season. Um, we lease the pasture to uh, a local breeder. And so part of the no sleep thing is, is that anybody who's done farm work will tell you that you're up early, you're up late. Like that's just part and parcel of the whole farm experience. So yeah, the day starts early around this place for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, you're so impressive, but let's just take it back a little bit for people who don't know you and don't know your background. Give us a little like Corey childhood moment where you're from and what you actually thought you'd be doing when you grew up. Oh, geez. All right. Well, I'm from Long Beach, California, and I grew up in a part of Long Beach that was very near to South Central Los Angeles, very diverse community. Um, my dad was a school teacher. There wasn't a lot of extra money around when I was a kid. And so a lot of what you did was you played pickup sports. You played pick up basketball at the local courts, or you played pick up baseball at the local park or whatever. And my hero from that time, from the time I was old enough to listen to the radio, was Vin Scully, who is the play-by-play announcer for the Dodgers, or like Chick Hearn, who used to be the play-by-play for the Lakers. So I thought in my like fever dreams as a child that I would be doing play-by-play sports for someone. In fact, I remember doing in pickup games, a lot of play-by-play announcing of like my friends and I like playing whatever we were doing. So that's where it started. It kind of ended up in a different place than where we started. (laughs) And you know, it's funny because you do kind of have that radio voice. I think you could still do it. Probably if you shave off an hour, you should do five hours of sleep. You could probably add an hour in somewhere and do that. Okay. So (laughs) Lisa, since you're talking about it, and I would love to know your pandemic hobby, what happened, but way back when. So I used to play in bands, not very good ones, but bands back in college. In fact, uh, I had one term where my focus was more on my band than school, which led to a really interesting conversation with my dad about like the focus of my life. But when I stopped being in bands, I started DJing. This was back in the 90s. And I didn't do it for a long time after that. But about two or three months into the pandemic, I realized I'm not traveling. I have no prospects of going anywhere really any further than my immediate neighborhood anytime soon. And a community radio station in San Francisco, KXSF FM 102.5, was hiring DJs, not even hiring, it's all volunteer, but they were looking for DJs to fill slots on the air. And so I am now 29 shows into my second shot at a radio life. So I have a show every other Thursday for three hours uh, called BYOB, Bring Your Own Beats. It's literally no genre, three hours of community radio, and it's been super fun. So that's been like a unexpected benefit of the pandemic or pandemic hobby that kind of turned into something. So it's really funny because one of the things that I want to make sure everyone does after this podcast is check out your LinkedIn Because I saw that on your LinkedIn and your volunteer. And I was like, that's cool. But like, actually, you're doing it, which of course you are because you do everything. So we're just going to actually have to start there because I do want to point out, and obviously this is Leave Your Mark and we talk about career journeys, but also the very sort of storytelling that you do, not just for the companies that you work for, but even the way that you present yourself. So I'm just going to read a snippet from your LinkedIn because- When I first saw this many years ago, I might add, I was like, if there was an award for best LinkedIn bio, for sure, (laughs) 
you would get it. I'm going to actually talk to you about that. I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> Introducing the world's biggest sports brand to new customers in a growing region, parentheses, in a different language. Counseling the founder of the world's largest software company as he transitioned to his next act as one of the globe's most important philanthropists and helping the world's biggest coffee company return to global prominence, indeed record revenue, profits, and market valuation, while champion its people and values as its core to success. These are the moments that have defined more than 20 years as a communicator of ideas, an advocate for employees and customers, and a change agent for some of the highest impact brands on the planet. And you go on with two more paragraphs. And it is like poetry. (laughs) I don't know about that. I mean, you're a writer, so clearly you know how to write. But what I love about and what I've always admired about your career is you just throw yourself 100% into whatever that role is. And every time you step into a new role, I mean, this is my purview, right, from the outside. It's kind of like you come in, and I don't want to say it's like a hurricane because I think you do it in the most lovely and thoughtful way, but you infuse the Corey magic of like, making major changes and impact in like very small amount of time wherever you go. So let's start with how the hell do you do that? <laughs> like seriously, how do you do that? Well, I mean, there has to be a cultural permission slip for the change to happen. You sure. know? And each of those companies that you just read from the bio, whether it was you know, Nike in the 90s or Microsoft in the 2000s or Starbucks in the 2010s or Google today, each of those companies to some extent had a cultural permission slip for change to occur. And largely that's a feature of founders still being there, right? Like that's definitely something I learned from Howard Schultz at Starbucks is that, you know, a company's culture is probably even more important than like the idea or the product or the service that sort of brought it to life in the first place. And I watched him at very close range, spending a lot of care and attention and time and heart on that company's culture and making sure that it was clear, like, what is our value set? What is our mission? What is our purpose? You know, what are we here to do? How do we continue to stay relevant as the world around us changes? What should we do to make the biggest impact? So to me, it's more a feature of amazing leaders at these companies that essentially opened a door. And then, you know, just did you choose to walk through it or not? And did you have teammates beside you who could help you in that endeavor? Because none of us do, Aliza, as you well know, I mean, we don't do anything on our own. If I learned anything from growing up as a coach's kid doing team sports, it's that you either succeed or fail on the basis of what the team can do. So in each of those instances, the only things that were accomplished were team things. I just happened to be there when the team was doing those things. Mm, I'm going to challenge that. While I do totally appreciate the team culture, and I know, listen, you oversee 200 people at Google, right? You have a massive team, and certainly you're not doing everything yourself. I do think that having the vision and the strategic prowess and the ability to kind of see through the weeds and also, by the way, not be afraid to say, okay, yeah, I get that we've done it this way for X amount of years, but now we're going to look at it in this whole new way. So that is, I think, where your sweet spot is, right? Because all these companies are great. They're great before you get there, but somehow you're able to shift the paradigm when you arrive. 
And that's a skill that like not everyone has. Well, you're very kind, kind to say so. Thank you. It's true. So as far as communications today, we have seen massive, massive changes even the past, you know, two years in the way that companies need to communicate. What would you say is the most important sort of brand pillar you stick to these days when it comes to storytelling uh, brand mission? It's going to sound trite, but I think it just has the benefit of being true, which is authenticity. And that authenticity has to be rooted in something real. So for me, real is really mission, values, purpose. Uh, At Google, for example, we are blessed with a really clear vision. So when Larry and Sergey were coming up with the concept of the company that became Google back when they were postdocs at Stanford, the mission was so clear to articulate, and it's true today too, right? Organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, right? Like that perfectly described the mission. And as the company grew and as that mission took on different tangible deliverables, so it included YouTube, it included cloud, it included Android, in addition to search, it included maps, it included, you know, all these different services, you could still root it in that mission and it would still make sense. And so to me, all the storytelling kind of starts from, are you clear about what you're doing? Are you clear about how you're to go about doing it? Like, are you aligned around the value set? You know, do you agree across the, in in our case, literally tens of thousands of people that are engaged in this endeavor every day, how you're going to go about doing it? And then have you agreed on to what end? You know, do you believe that there is some broader global impact that you can make? What is that global impact? Now, now I'm a lot clearer about the story. Now I'm a lot clearer about who actually benefits from this? How do I help tell their story? And I think that, you know, with the help of my team, as well as the help of our marketing team, who are also superb storytellers, we do get that sort of 360 surround sound benefit of a united way to kind of tell stories about Google products. What do they do to help the world organize information and make it accessible and useful to everyone? How do you build for everyone. That's a very challenging objective or goal. And then how do you tell stories that demonstrate that like actually we're building for users, billions of them all over the planet. And that's really exciting to, you know, kind of spelunk or go diving for the stories that bring that mission and that set of values and that purpose to life. For sure. And I think Maybe you can speak a little bit to some of the changes you've implemented there, because I know that obviously there's a lot of analysis post-mortem that you do on all of your initiatives as far as making sure that the data is being analyzed and you're clear on sort of what the results were for all these initiatives. Yeah, I mean, measurement's interesting, right? Because you can use it to sort of go backward and think about like, hey, did we achieve what we set out to do? How do we know it? What are the you know, signals or data points that would tell us that. To me, what's more interesting about measurement is the extent to which it informs future planning. And Mm -hmm. so when I think about Google, I really think about Google products as being the thing that forms the vast majority of the perception that people have about the company. You know, the reputation value for Google really resides in the products. And so to us, the best way to continue to enhance and protect the company's reputation is to show those products in the hands of users and then measure 
what was it about that story? What was it about that campaign? What was it about that particular product and what it brought to life for a user that was so beneficial? And then that wraps itself into, you know, the next campaign that we run. And typically, Aliza, what users will say about Google products is that they are helpful. And so when you see our ads, when you see stories about Google products, or we just got done with IO, Google IO, we hadn't had it in two years. And we chose to do it live rather than pre-produced, which was a bit of a high wire act in the middle of the pandemic to do a live event outdoors where it was safe to do. It was two hours of product stories showing literally across the entire spectrum of products that we offer, how those products are helpful, how users can articulate that themselves. In what ways, you know, did maps help you to, for example, find a black owned business and therefore be able to support that business in the middle of a racial pandemic on top of a health pandemic, you know, like to put those tools and that discoverability into a user's hands is gold. And so that's what we're measuring for is to sort of see the extent to which that is true or not true. And then if we did it well, can you replicate or build on that? If we didn't do it well, then how do we tease that out and make it more prominent the next time around? So fascinating. When you think about your role today in communications and you think about your role in communications when you first started, Mm. is there anything that's the same? I think that a story well told, a message well crafted and delivered, that's always been valuable. It was valuable then, it's valuable now, it'll be valuable in the future. I think how you do that and the channels by which you do that has changed pretty spectacularly (laughs) over the last 25 (laughs) years. So that's definitely different. You know, if you talk to my son, for example, who's a recent college grad and has gotten into comms, that's his chosen career. He would say that the number of things that he is physically picking up and reading are almost zero, right? But he is as informed, maybe even more so than any of us were at, at his age or at any point in time across our journey. But just the method of information consumption and the way that that information is sort of translated to action or belief or, you know, some form of connection to a brand or a service or an organization is a very different proposition, I think, than it used to be. And the last thing I'll say that has changed significantly, and I'm really glad for it, is that I kind of started my communications career at Nike in employee communications. I was one of the first employee comms people for the biggest region of that company, the U.S., and then all the programs sort of expanded from there. You know, you look at sort of basic tool sets. You're sort of looking at like, what's the intranet for the entire company so that they can remain connected? You know, what are the meetings and cadence by which we are making sure that people are informed in a timely way of what matters to the company and what our values are? And, you know, they're having fun and we're showing that this is a fun company and how you can connect with others. All those things were true back then, but the pandemic showed the primacy of employee communications or internal communications at a time where we were all distributed, right? And Mm -hmm. you and I are having an experience now on this platform that's a lot like what Zoom or Meet or, you know, Teams or any of those products were, which is sort of this Brady Bunch configuration of you being in one place and me being in another. And employee comms had to very quickly adapt to ensure that these distributed organizations would be able to not just survive, but thrive, actually sort of come out the back end of the pandemic with some different lessons or some different skills learned. So I'm delighted for my internal comms team because I think they feel rightly 
like they were the backbone or the glue for the last 16 months for our organization. And we're going to build on that. You know, I feel super convicted that it was right before it was proven right during, and it will most certainly be something that we invest in after the pandemic. I think that's a really good point. I think there are a lot of positive things actually that came out of it, including the fact that, I mean, I do feel when you're connecting, especially with teams around the world, there is no better way than to sort of have, I mean, you say Brady Bunch, I say Hollywood Squares, same thing, right? (laughs) Same idea. (laughs) I mean, things have changed so much in other ways, but I do think at the end of the day, I still will click on a link on Twitter and be like, okay, what's that headline? You do really react to like, okay, how has that been spun to come out a certain way? And there's such an art to it. There is. And that's evolved a lot too, exactly because of the dynamics you're describing with social media, where everybody's attention span is compressed. They have a lot less time to process these things. They're probably not reading full stories the way that they used to. I mean, I do remember, Elisa, this probably tells you how old I am. Like the idea of a fortune cover story that was like eight full or 10 full pages of the magazine. You know, you were literally thinking like the art director was thinking, what is the best shot for that executive in situ, you know, and, and how do we orchestrate that? And what's the narrative arc of the story in a way where you can kind of talk about, did the dream almost die or was the dream inhibited in some way? You know, how was the dream rescued? You know, what are the voices that can sort of prove that the dream was rescued and it has a future life? That was the fortune cover story from like not that long ago, you know, like the 2000s. And now we're thinking in bite-sized chunks. We're thinking about the way that people consume info on Twitter. And to your point, often it's literally like the headline and the opening graph. And so newsrooms have had to orchestrate their product in the same way. They've had to start thinking about how do they compress for those smaller attention spans, knowing how much is competing for your time and your attention and your heart and the things that, you know, you intend to do with all that. And so it hasn't changed, but the circumstances, the wrapper for all of it has definitely changed the societal wrapper. When you think about your superpower, your personal superpower, what would you say is like the most skilled thing you know how to do? (laughs) The most skilled thing I know how to do. Well, I mean, to your point, I've been writing for a long time. And I do think that for the 20 years that I spent as this side hustle as a you know pop journalist, basically, you really do learn how to very quickly turn copy. You know, here's the general idea. Here's the news McNugget. How are you going to market with that thing? How do you write something compelling? Part of the process that you go through as a writer is you're thinking always about your audience and the extent to which that story can fit the pocket, you know, the review pocket, the concert pocket, the long form arc that is a feature story pocket. When you learn how to think that way, I think that for the jobs that we do internally, where we're helping companies to think about, you know, how do you position a product or a service or whatever, that gives you the ability to sort of flip the switch and say, like, here's how it will be written. Here's the headline that will happen as a consequence of that. Here's how to make it better. And I often talk to my team about the idea that the counsel that we offer, yes, it's about communications, but it's also about business. And really a lot of the counsel never ends up on the printed page because what we're trying to do is architect the best possible outcome. And to do that, sometimes it means changing the product. Sometimes it means delaying the product or not shipping the product at all. Sometimes it means hustling something onto the field that you weren't expecting it 
to be there 120 days ago or whatever it might be. So that's all part of the job is thinking about sort of, again, the wrapper for these concepts. You know, how do you make them more fully dimensional and more accessible to the human audience that you want to love them or use them or help themselves to be helped by those things? So it's writing. Yeah, you're an excellent writer. Can you share a moment in your career when you saw the PR's direct impact and you were like, we nailed it. Like it just went exactly how you envisioned the strategy to go and delivered exactly what you wanted it to. Yeah, I can think about that. So Starbucks has this amazing concept. And I don't know if you've visited one of these or not, but it's called a Starbucks Reserve Roastery. Oh, I have. In meatpacking, I used to work next door to it. So you know it very well. And by the way, that's a beautiful instantiation of that concept. Gorgeous. But the first of these lovely gifts to the coffee community that visited themselves upon the planet was in Seattle, Washington. And we spent so much time, Aliza, at that place. I mean, like, we did things that journalists should do, right? Like, we interviewed all of the coffee masters that were roasting there. We interviewed the amazing array of Starbucks partners wearing the green apron that came from all over the country because they knew what a special opportunity it would be to be the first Starbucks partners to unleash this concept to the world. So it was a very diverse group of folks, many of whom had been with the company a long, long time. So they too had amazing backstories and histories and how did you come to this company in the first place? And what made you come to Seattle to come do this job? So we spent many months sort of thinking about what is the best visual for this? What is the best headline for this? How do we create the most special opening? I mean, you came from retail, so you understand the concept of the grand opening. We all fuss over many details and sort of getting all the things right. And it is like a wedding in a way, you know, that was the analogy that we used was sort of like, you know, we're having this amazing wedding and we want as many guests as possible and we want people to crash the wedding. And, you know, this is in many respects, the genius of Howard Schultz is that Howard is a very visual conceptual thinker. And so he had thought of the most amazing set of things to sort of pack into this shell, this space. And the New York one is every bit as special as the Seattle one, is every bit as special as Chicago, is every bit as special as Shanghai. And I was fortunate to be there for many of those grand openings. But I mean, even a red velvet rope, right? Literally, the fire marshal won't let any more people in this place. So how do we make it special for you to hang out and wait and not feel disappointed by having to wait? You know, And what mm -hmm. do we do for guests when they're on the line and things like that? So that first opening in Seattle was just, it was an explosion of press, of attention. And mostly the thing we cared about was just customer love. You know, how do we get people to say that was as special an experience as I've ever had and I can't wait to go back? You know, I'll go back tomorrow if they'll let me in. <laughs> That's sort of when we knew, like, Howard always wanted to have meetings down there. So after it opened, he'd be like, you know, oh, come to the roastery. We'll have a meeting at like Thursday afternoon or whatever. And this is months later and you'd go there and there's still a line. There's still a line. And so you know that like Starbucks doesn't do a lot of marketing. There wasn't a ton of advertising for any of that. It was really built on the back of earned media, social media, and word of mouth, you know, just the experience that came from it. And so that led our team to feel very intimately connected to an important part of that company's future business prospects. You know, like the team could feel invested in the outcome and 
you know, we were sort of watching this phenomenon happen in front of us. And it was cool because we actually got to see other retailers sort of coming through, looking at that concept and trying to apply it to their own business. Like what about this is special and works for us? So it was cool to see it work for us. It was even more special to watch others sort of say, what can we learn from that experience? So super fun. That's so awesome. You're clearly a busy guy. So what are your personal tactics for like keeping up with your own network of relations, whether media or otherwise? So for media, I just try to have a steady state of scheduled discussions with folks. It it sounds, you know, kind of boring and dad-like, but I do try to keep kind of a cadence, if you will, of folks that I will have an actual appointment to go chat with. But informally, I mean, we're DMing people all the time. We're on the phone with people all the time. Some of it is more instinctive. It's just sort of like you're reading something or you kind of know that you're about to approach a moment where this particular journalist or this particular outfit that they either write or report for would be the perfect venue for that kind of a story. So you're thinking in advance. And we have as a team several organizing principles that help us to sort of keep all of the things organized. We have something that we call a flight deck. The flight deck works in a two-week cadence where we can actually see all the news announcements arrayed and we can sort of move some of the pegs around the board if we need to. And then that translates into a report that I send around to the company every weekend that kind of says, here's the week ahead. Here are the issues that we're wrestling with. We have some you know, kind of side links that, you know, hey, if you need talking points as a VP for subject X, Y, or Z, you can go to that place. And so they all feed from that initial source. Mm-hmm. But then there's the work that we do, which is sort of helping to educate, helping to storytell, helping people to learn about the things that we care about as we go. And that's where I am helped by, you know, literally the hive mind <laughs> that is my team and all the relationships that they have with all the different outlets that we're engaged with to be thinking about who would be best for this, that, and the other. And so some of it is proactive and just thinking about relationship maintenance. Mm -hmm. Some of it's more tactical, like this story would be perfect for X, Y, Z. And some of it's reactive. You know, it's just people who are calling you or pinging you or saying like, you know, hey, I, I think this thing. And you may not agree with the thing that they are thinking. And that sparks a different kind of relationship or a different kind of discussion. So, I mean, we all have our favorites, right? So for sure, if you looked at my phone, you'd be like, oh, I know who your like 15 favorites are, the people that you're in constant touch with. But that comes more organically. I think to be a little more strategic, you do have to have a bit more of a plan approach to, you know, kind of make sure that you're getting the touch points in where you need to. What's your view on Twitter these days for yourself personally? Like how much time do you spend? I try not to spend a ton of time on it. Um, I have a very mixed relationship with Twitter. You know, I feel like on the one hand, it's a very useful tool for staying current. I think that you can overdose on currency pretty quickly. And I also think that there are biases based on who you follow and what they believe or what they're writing or talking about that give you recency bias or that will sort of tilt your belief system in one way, shape or form. And so... Mm -hmm. I do try consciously to sort of like limit the amount of time that I'm spending on it. And in terms of, you know, what I am actually commenting on, I will say that over the years, just as the toxicity in that environment has become much more prevalent, much more difficult to avoid, I just find that it's a less useful tool for actual dialogue. 
You know, mm-hmm. like there's a time and place. We used to do a thing at Nike. This is years and years ago, long before Twitter, where Nike didn't do well with email arguments. Nike's whole thing was there was sort of this unwritten rule where like after a certain amount of back and forth, you stopped and you talked to the person. And you said, we're going to go to the Boston Deli, which was a actual like beer bar on campus. And we're going to go hash this out over a beer. And so I still think that approach is kind of appropriate. You can't hash out every disagreement on Twitter over a beer, but it's just not a good place to really engage in that kind of dialogue because that's not actually what's happening. You know, it's not really about constructive disagreement there. It's about grandstanding. It's about broadcasting. It's about, in some cases, using it for almost campaign purposes. You know, to me, that doesn't feel like constructive dialogue. Yeah. I just don't have the time or headspace to get engaged there. I hear you. I'm just curious, how many rounds of the back and forth at Nike was considered appropriate before you crossed that line? Not that many. Probably like three. (laughs) Honestly, like three back and forth. And you're sort of, we're not getting anywhere. What's interesting is I worked for Microsoft after that. That company's culture is built on email tennis. I was shocked. You know, like I came there and I was like, this thread is like 50 replies long. How do I even make head or tail over that? And just different culture, different belief system. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were definitely more like Socratic debate people than any of us at Nike ever were. And so that Socratic debate played out in mail in a way that I had to unlearn one behavior and completely relearn a different behavior because it just was a totally different culture. That's so crazy. I actually had a recent (laughs) tennis match, but it was on Jira. Have you ever used Jira? I know of it, but we don't use it. No. Yeah. So we went like four rounds or something. And then I was like, I think probably we should have a phone call. Like, I don't think this is going to get anywhere anymore on Jira. Yes. What is the hardest part about your job? Probably the hardest part about the job is the acceptance that comes with knowing that you work to tell your story through third parties. You know, you were talking before about headlines, you know, and how hard we work to shape them. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. And I think even reporters would say that often their own organizational construct means that they will turn in a 1,000 word or 2,000 word story, but they don't influence the headline. They may have an idea, they'll send it to their editor and say, here's what I think it should be, but that's often not what the headline ends up being. Mm -hmm. So I think you learn early in a world of earned media that you can do all the work all the messaging, you can put all the right people on the phone or in a meeting or whatever the case may be, loads of proof points, you know, lots of third party backup. And you still might end up with something that the company says is like C plus, or you say is like, like we failed, that one just did not work. And you know, I think that for a company like Google, where we are right now, where you're going through a great deal of scrutiny, there's a lot of, you know, sort of legal scrutiny of the company. There's certainly a moment that we're passing through right now that is very heavy on regulation and not even in this country alone, lots of other countries, you know, you look to Europe, you look to Asia and you see that there is an appetite for regulation or an appetite for intervention that, you know, wasn't even there five years ago with technology. And you just have to start tuning your frequency to that reality. You know, you realize that like, earned media may not be the place that we're the most successful telling this story, or we may not get the result we want. And this is what leads you to start thinking about other better, higher uses for your company's newsroom, or the content that you create, or ways that you can partner with your paid media folks and marketing to work out strategies that give you a better likelihood that your message gets through. And 
that's a constant discussion between my CMO partner and myself, which is really where do you take the majority of the weight? Where do I take the majority of the weight? Where do we go 50-50 on this? You know, and how do we do that in a strategic and thoughtful way so that as a team, we can kind of hold that up to the company along with our policy counterparts and say, this is the right direction of travel. It's a very dynamic conversation. Yeah, I do think, I mean, I'm just picturing because I said this today to someone like the Venn diagram between organic and performance and how those two sides come together to tell a story right now, I think is kind of where you're going to get the most controlled impact, right? To be able to really steer it in the direction you want to. For sure. And I mean, look, there are loads of people way smarter than me that are working in that more predictive part of the world where they're really looking at whether it's measurement or it's, you know, combo approaches to thinking about, as you said, you know, sort of a performance organic kind of mix and how do those things work in tandem with one another? Is there a way that you can study over some fixed period of time, which campaigns tend to do which kinds of things in which ways? So, you know, I think that's an evolving part of the the art, you know, that we're involved in that's applying science and art together. And, you know, I think we're we're really at the beginning of that, Aliza. I don't think we're anywhere near where we're going to end up there, in part because the media environment is changing so much. I think that, you know, yeah. to be fair to our publishing partners, it's a very difficult, you know, the digital world has made publishing a very difficult place to do well from a business point of view. There are loads of different business models. They tend to fall into, you know, like, hey, you're a subscription animal or, hey, you know, you're an ad animal. But I think all of that is still evolving right now. And so, part of our job, in addition to sort of the pick up phone or send note or be in contact with uh, earned media, you know, with journalists, is to be strategizing about the broader picture for our companies that we represent, whether, you know, we're in-house or we work for an agency, and help those companies to sort of evaluate the landscape and think about where is the direction of travel going? Where do we most effectively reach the audience that we care the most about? Yeah. That's going to be a big part of the next five years for people who do my kind of job is really thinking about how do you turn that base of knowledge into action, into results, into replicable impact. So well said. What do you look for in hiring people? Curiosity, first and foremost. I love people who are learners, you know, like they're lifelong learners and they're really interested they're asking questions. They want to know why things are the way they are. I love that innate curiosity. And when you work for bosses that are innately curious, I, Bill Gates, super curious, super curious about so many different things. Howard Schultz, almost restless in his curiosity to understand things, learn things, want to know people's stories. That was the most amazing part of watching him operate for me was just the human connection he had as sort of an extroverted leader that you can overpower people that way, or you can draw them in. And his curiosity about people's stories was just intoxicating. It, it taught me a lot, you know? So I'm looking for people who learn and people who are curious, because I think there's a lot about our world that you can teach people. Um, you're going to have to learn it anyway. And a lot of it is the lessons of experience or learning it on the job. But some things like an innate curiosity or a kindness or a work ethic that uh, maybe this is, again, a feature of growing up a coach's kid, 
my dad's whole fixation as a coach, like all coaches, they're looking for talent. They're like, where's the talent? You know, and often depending on where in the world you are, you may not have a lot of native talent. So then you're looking for work ethic. You're like, how do you find kids that just want to be better? You know, they want to be good teammates. They're good people. They want to work hard. They want to learn something. How do you find those kids? And how do you milepost where the growth is happening? So watching him coach year after year after year of like soccer teams and basketball teams and softball teams, he himself was a competitive swimmer and diver. That's what he went to college to go do. Um, it's charting growth, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from that curiosity or that demonstration that you want to learn. So I love that. I'm really attracted to people who will come to us and they are much more interested in what they can learn than what they think they can tell you. How does that play out, though, in an interview process, right? Because I think candidates think, okay, like I have to show them that I've got these skills, I know what to do. So where's the balance there? I think it's just not being afraid to ask questions yourself as part of the interview process. You know, I do think, like you say, that there's so much performance that's involved. Yeah. You know, like, how do I organize my skills and my experience and, you know, the things I've done that I would put in a top 10 list in a way that's, you know, the most prominent or obvious to the company as opposed to, sure, you can work that into the discussion. But I think interviewing these days or the job hunt these days to me is very much a 50-50 proposition. Yeah, it's true. When I look at labor market statistics, it definitely looks that way. Like, you know, it's harder than ever to find the people that you want that fit your culture. And, you know, I think candidates feel the same way. They want to be in a place where they can make a difference. They can make impact. They want to be challenged. So I think at least it's just not being afraid to ask questions as an organic part of the process, right? I mean, I'm assuming you feel the same way or that you've had those kinds of experiences, maybe even in the role that you're playing now, where you're testing as much, is this culture right for me? Is this company right for me? Will they sure. give me the chance to really take the training wheels off and do something interesting? Uh, so I think it goes both ways. I totally agree. Let's talk about the Memorial Scholarship that you set up. Oh, for my dad? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was a lifelong educator. You know, he's a teacher and a guy of very humble means. I mean, not to get into too much detail, but effectively he and his brother were given up at birth by their mom and were essentially bought out of the black market by their maternal grandmother. Wow. And raised on a fireman's pension in South Central Los Angeles, right? So for him, it wasn't always clear, like, where's the next meal coming from? Or what kind of opportunities do I have to leave this neighborhood that I grew up in? And so for him, every nickel counted, you know? Yeah. The scholarship was literally the difference between whether or not he was going to go on and, and go to college. It was the same for my uncle. And so I think he had an affinity for, uh, like I said, you know, kids that would work hard, that would learn, but probably came from very limited means, just like himself. And so the scholarship, I mean, he passed young. He was in his, he wasn't that much older than I am now when he passed mm -hmm. from cancer. And so for me, it was just an opportunity to kind of pay tribute to what he really cared about. Uh, it's a hard moment. You know, it's a weird thing to speak at a parent's uh, memorial. It's a, it's a hard yeah. thing to do. That's like the hardest speech you're ever going to give is to like say something meaningful when, you know, it's just super emotional. It's hard to keep your thoughts clear. And you know, it's a room full of people that you knew or your parent knew or, you know, it's so it feels both comforting and like, wow, there's a lot of pressure on me to actually say something mm -hmm. meaningful here. 
Yeah. So we had his memorial in the high school gym of the school where he taught. And so oh. for me, it, it was it was great. But it also made me really focus on like, okay, we're all going to walk out of here tonight, having kind of celebrated the life of this person. But like, how do you extend that in some way? And so for me, that was the scholarship. And thankfully, there's a community organization in the place where he was teaching that had a very easy way to kind of set it up. And it's beautiful, Lisa, because every year I get letters from the scholarship recipients. I've met several of them. Like you just, you really understand the impact. You feel it. You really feel it. That's so wonderful. Which is super cool. Okay, Corey. I mean, I have no idea if this is like a thing, but like you need a book. You need a book. I need a book. I need to write a book. Yeah, you need to write a book. <laughs> I thought you're <laughs> that you're saying I need a book. I was like, I know, I, I <laughs> no, probably do. There's a few on this. You have no time to do a book, over. but you can write one. No, but seriously, I really think that there is an incredible book in all of this. So you heard it here first. That's like my contribution to this conversation. Well, thank you. I have thought about it though, and you want to know what what attracts me to that idea? It's founders attract me to that idea. And I didn't realize that this was happening until way late in my career. But Phil Knight was still at Nike. Bill Gates was still at Microsoft. Howard Schultz 2.0 was at Starbucks. That was, for me, the most formative eight years of my career. I could talk to you about Howard for hours. He's a lovely, complex, amazing guy. But his leadership capacity was just off the charts. So I felt like I really went to like master's program or I went to grad school at, you know, Howard Schultz University for that eight years. Mark Benioff still today at Salesforce and Larry and Sergey were still in the Google alphabet orbit the first two years that I was at Google. So I didn't really realize that what was happening was I was doing communications for founders. And what's interesting about that is founders, you know, it's their kid, right? It's their kid. I mean, you, you work for Donna Karen, so you, kind of understand sure. that idea. But, you know, their fingerprints are all over the culture. They feel a great deal of ownership over, like, how things are going day to day here. But Howard's big thing was sort of like, look, if I come back in five years after I leave and you characters are in a conference room somewhere basically saying to one another, like, what would Howard do? Then I have failed. I've totally failed. Like, it is my job to create the blueprint so that you don't have to ask questions like, what would Howard do? You would know better what would Starbucks do because of mission values purpose? Howard is not an important part of that conversation. So for me doing founder comms for geez, 20 some years now, I think that's an interesting book because there's a lot of lessons in there from Phil Knight and his very, you know, like I'll sell shoes out of the back trunk of my car if I need to, which is how Nike started. It was blue ribbon sports, him selling to athletes at track meets. On oh, weekends. I read the book. I read the book. I know. Yeah. It's amazing. So, but each one of those founders had very specific impact on their culture, right? And it led me to believe, Elisa, that there is a dominant movement that each company has, and it's largely driven by the founders. So at Nike, Phil was super interested in, he and Bill Bowerman, as you know, because you read the book, they built stuff, right? They built shoes using like a waffle iron and things like that. So design, more than marketing, design was really the dominant movement for that company. The superstars at Nike were the designers. And at Microsoft, at least while I was there, the superstars were the engineers. They built a big sales organization. So today you could look at Microsoft and say it's very much a sales company. But at the time, 
it was an engineering culture driven by the head engineer who was Bill Gates. Um, Starbucks, people think that they're like an amazing sales company. I disagree. I actually don't think they're particularly good at sales. I think they're excellent at service, maybe the best at service. And that's all Howard. You know, it was literally Howard trying to figure out, like, not to put him on the couch or anything, but like he grew up in poverty in Brooklyn and he was inventing a company that his parents could be proud to work for. And so that's why they were one of the first hourly wage companies to offer like health benefits and to offer stock to employees and the things that they did, which became now standard everywhere. Howard was pioneering in large measure because he wanted service people to have a dignity about what they were doing for work every day. Because what he observed as a kid was not that. Service people did not have dignity. That is not the experience that they had. And so I thought that was totally profound. You know, Mark is a sales guy. So of course, Salesforce is a sales organization and Larry and Sergey were engineers. So the superstars at Google were engineers. So each company has like this dominant motion and the founders put those thumbprints on that company when it's being born. And then they're nurturing it as it yeah. goes. And then let's not forget about all the ones who put the bad thumbprint on the company, right? That's true too. You know, not every founder is created equal, as you well know, but I do think your personal experience with all of these profound, brilliant people, I think would be really a great book and I would love to read it. So just let's leave it there, Corey. Okay, we'll leave it. We'll park we'll that park for now. That. Yes, I'll find some time when I'm not sleeping to get yes, that done. Yes, I, I have yes. faith. <laughs> All right. So last question. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? I mean, you've had incredible mentors, but you are also really leaving your mark on 200 people right now at Google. But ultimately, what do you want to be known for? Well, look, I mean, I've been really lucky to have some great mentors throughout my career. And one of the best was a guy named Dr. Bill Winter, the late Dr. Bill Winter, who was a professor of mine at the University of Oregon. And I spent a lot of time in Dr. Winter's office. <laughs> he was Dr. Winter was a chain smoker. I was not. So you had to sort of like Stand back. steal yourself. You had, to, you had to deal. If you're going to be in Dr. Winter's office, you got to know you're going to have a couple of cigarettes going during your conversation. Secondhand but, smoke situation. Whew, but one thing that Dr. Winter taught me is he's like, the measure of a leader, if you will, it's less directly tied to your accomplishments. Like I want you to do things for sure, but a leader, it's less tied to your accomplishments and it's much more tied to the success of the people that you lead. And it made like this, it was just like a bell got rung right next to my head, you know, like, cause you don't think about that. You know, you're in your early twenties or late teens or whatever you are when you come into that person's orbit. And probably haven't led anybody, barely led yourself. Mm -hmm. And so these are things that resonated for me much later where I realized that like the coolest thing for me is watching people that were in my orbit go off and be super successful. For example, the woman who leads communications for Jeff Bezos' space organization, Blue Origin, she and I have not chatted a lot during the pandemic. And she sent me the cutest text the other day because Sundar, during an interview, said that he was super jealous of Jeff Bezos going up into space. He was just like, I think it would be amazing to watch Earth from space. I think he, I'm sure he could go. I think he probably could. Hitch a ride, you know. But it was one line in an interview that made it into a story. And of course, Linda is her name, Linda. Linda texts me and she's like, I'll have our sales team reach out. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was like, that is so, I mean, first of all, that very understated wry humor is so her, but it, it made me so proud of her because I was just like, you know, first of all, thank you for paying any attention. Secondly, it's great yeah. to be back in touch with you. And third of all, it just reminds you of the impact you can have. And I started thinking about like people who now lead comms teams at airlines, people who lead them for food companies, people who lead them at tech organizations, people who've started up their own agencies, people who've gotten completely out of comms and done something totally other and been really successful there too, which to me is perhaps even more exciting. So that's how I want to leave my mark. It's not me. It's never been. Uh, but you know, the people that I've worked with, I'm so excited for them. And that's what I get energized by is just watching. It's almost like a plume. It's like a jet plume. You know, you're sort of watching this shape in space and somebody is racing ahead with their lives and their families and their dreams and the things that they want to do. And I, I love that. I got all day long for that. So that's my mark. Corey, you're such a good human, such a good human. You are doing that all over the place. So you'll continue to do that. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. I am such a huge fan of your career, have been for many, many years. You're so incredibly inspiring, and I can't wait for people to listen to this episode. Well, Lisa, it's lovely to chat to you. Thank you for asking me, and congrats on all your success, too. This has been so much fun to be a part of, and I just feel honored to be a part of this now going on 100-episode affair that you started as a brainchild years ago. So uh, it's, it's really cool to watch. I look forward to hearing more. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Elisa Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Elisa Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to elisalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.